0: We turn in God's word to Second Samuel, which gives us the history behind our text. Our text is from Psalm 51. Second Samuel, chapter 11, beginning at verse 26. 2 Samuel 11, verse 26. And when the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she mourned for her husband. And when the mourning was past, David sent and fetched her to his house, and she became his wife and bare him a son. But the thing that David had done, displeased the Lord. And the Lord sent Nathan unto David, and he came unto him and said unto him, There were two men in one city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had exceeding many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing save one little ewe lamb which he had bought and nourished up, and it grew up together with him and with his children, it did eat of his own meat and drank of his own cup and lay in his bosom and was unto him as a daughter. And there came a traveler unto the rich man, and he spared to take of his own flock and of his own herd to dress for the wayfaring man that was come unto him, but took the poor man's lamb and dressed it for the man that was come to him. And David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord liveth, the man that hath done this thing shall surely die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold, because he did this thing, and because he had no pity. And Nathan said to David, Thou art the man. Thus saith the Lord God of Israel I anointed thee king over Israel, and I delivered thee out of the hand of Saul. And I gave thee thy master's house and thy master's wives into thy bosom, and gave thee the house of Israel and of Judah. And if that had been too little, I would moreover have given unto thee such and such things. Wherefore hast thou despised the commandment of the Lord to do evil in his sight, Thou hast killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword, and hast taken his wife to be thy wife, and hast slain him with the sword of the children of Ammon. Now therefore the sword shall never depart from thine house, because thou hast despised me, and hast taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be thy wife." Thus saith the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against thee out of thine own house, and I will take thy wives before thine eyes and give them unto thy neighbor, and he shall lie with thy wives in the sight of this son. For thou didst it secretly. I will do this thing before all Israel and before the Son. And David said unto Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said unto David, The Lord also hath put away thy sin, thou shalt not die. Howbeit, because by this deed thou hast given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child also that is born unto thee shall surely die. Thus far, we read God's holy word. We turn to Psalm 51 for the text of the sermon. I have just begun a series on this psalm. Psalm 51. We look at the first two verses. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to thy loving kindness, according unto the multitude of thy tender mercies, blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from mine iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. Beloved, Psalm 51 is one of the penitential psalms. It's called a penitential psalm because it expresses repentance. And of the seven penitential psalms, this one and number 32 are the most well-known. You'll recall in Psalm 32... And Psalm 51, we really have the same background history. They concern the same event. And the title in Psalm 51 makes that explicit to us. To the chief musician, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet came to him after he had gone in To Bathsheba. And the Hebrew language here has a kind of play on words. David went into Bathsheba to commit adultery with her. That was a sinful going in to Bathsheba. And Nathan went in to David same Hebrew verb, but he was doing that to confront David because of his sin, to call him to repentance. That was a righteous going in, and so a righteous going into David follows an unrighteous or a wicked going in of David to Bathsheba. But Psalm 32 and 51, although they concern the same event, the same history, the same background, are very different in content and tone. The keynote of Psalm 32 is, Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven. And the key note of Psalm 51 is, Have mercy upon me, O God. Or you might put it this way: the keynote of Psalm 32 is, Thank you. I thank thee for the blessing of the forgiveness of sins. And the keynote of Psalm 51 is please. He's asking for the forgiveness of sins. And so in Psalm 32, there is praise to God for this blessing of the forgiveness of sins. David's looking backwards to a time when he was walking in his sin, when he was impenitent and foolish, and God turned him from that wicked way so that he came to confess that sin and he received the pardon of his sin. He looks back at that and he says to God, I thank thee, blessed I am, that my sin has been forgiven. But in Psalm 51, he is not yet ready to express Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven. He is still seeking, in Psalm 51, he is still seeking to know and to have assurance that his sin is indeed forgiven. Indeed, the prophet says to him in 2 Samuel twelve thirteen, The Lord hath put away thy sin, thou shalt not die. And yet... He still pens, he still writes this Psalm 51 because he has not yet appropriated the full assurance that his sin has indeed been forgiven. He does not yet experience the joy of that forgiveness of his sins. And so Psalm 51 is really an extended plea for the forgiveness of sins sins. Read through that psalm, a well-known psalm, and look at the number of times he uses the first person, I, me, my. I counted 27 times. And look through all the entreaties, all the requests, have mercy, blot out, wash, cleanse, create, renew, cast not away, take not away, restore, uphold, deliver, open, do good. A whole list of requests which he is bringing to God now that he has been awakened to the fact that he has been walking in Sin And now that he is ready to confess his sin and to express sorrow over his sin, he writes Psalm 51. And this teaches us, then, beloved, what true repentance looks like, what a true sorrow over sin looks like. Notice, then, a heartfelt plea for mercy a heartfelt plea for mercy. It was first confessing sin, then seeking cleansing, and finally appealing to mercy. In these first two verses of the psalm, beloved, David uses three different words to describe his wicked behavior. And when someone does this, when he multiplies his vocabulary of sin, it is a very good indication that he is not minimizing his sin, but he is confessing sincerely his wrongdoing. And the first word he uses is transgressions. Notice Transgressions in the plural, and notice my transgressions. One who is sorry for his sin will admit that they are transgressions. And the idea of transgression here is rebellion. Transgression always means. A deliberate and willful act of rebellion. And that means there must be a lawful authority against whom a person rebels, and there must be a clearly defined line which a person crosses. In 2 Samuel 12, Nathan exposes and sets forth the specific transgressions that David has committed. And that's important to know because we're often told that David is a pattern of the penitent sinner. And that's true. He is the pattern of the penitent sinner sinner, but some will say that David simply said, after all of this prophecy that Nathan brings to him that David simply says in second Samuel 12:13, I have sinned against the Lord and they would say then that is sufficient. that's all you have to say I have sinned against the Lord and such a person might also then refuse to confess specific transgressions but David's I have sinned against the Lord has context and the context is that Nathan has just listed the many transgressions of which David is guilty. He mentions really three things. Number one, David has despised God and God's commandments. That's something deliberate to despise God and God's commandments verse 9 of Second Samuel 12, Wherefore hast thou despised the commandment of the Lord to do evil in his sight? And verse 10, Thou hast despised me. I have sinned against the Lord includes that. The second thing that David has done, he has committed murder. Verse 9, thou hast killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword. And again, verse 9, thou hast slain him with the sword of the children of Ammon. David's, I have sinned against the Lord, also includes that. And the third thing that Nathan mentions is adultery. Thou hast taken, verse 9, his wife to be thy wife. And again, thou hast taken the wife of Uriah, the Hittite, to be thy wife. And so when David says, I have sinned against the Lord, he means, I have sinned against the Lord in the specific ways which Nathan has just mentioned. I have despised God. I have despised God's commandments. I have done evil in his sight. I have taken Uriah's wife to be mine. I have murdered Uriah and shed innocent blood. I have sinned against the Lord. And thus the word transgression, in the plural, is appropriate. David has deliberately crossed certain lines. David has deliberately broken certain commandments. He has transgressed the seventh commandment, thou shalt not commit adultery. He has transgressed the sixth commandment, thou shalt not kill. He has transgressed the ninth commandment because he was guilty of deception and an attempt to cover his sin. He has broken the eighth commandment because he has stolen. He has broken the first commandment because he has been selfish and put himself in the place of God. He has broken the third commandment because he has given the enemies of the Lord an occasion to blaspheme. He has broken the Tenth Commandment because he has coveted his neighbor's wife. I have sinned against the Lord. My transgressions, he says. And he's done this despite the fact that the commandments forbid this very behavior. And he knew that too. Think of the commandments, beloved, like stop lights. You're driving. You see a red light. You must stop. The commandments are like these warnings, a light that says you must stop. And David, although he had those warnings, refused to stop. In 2 Samuel 11 verse 3, David asks a question, who is that woman that I see? And the answer comes back to him from his servant, is not this Bathsheba the daughter of Eliam the wife of Uriah the Hittite two stop signs the first one said thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife and the second one said thou shalt not commit adultery and David he continued and then the deed was done He tried to cover up his sin. He deceived Uriah and tried to cover up his sin. Another stoplight, therefore, telling him, thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor. But David continued. And when this attempt to cover up his sin was unsuccessful, he thought of a plan to kill Uriah, to get rid of him another stoplight. Thou shalt not kill. David continues. Transgressions. Deliberate, willful transgressions. Notice, too, he says, my transgressions. Not Bathsheba's transgressions, my transgressions. Not my weaknesses or my shortcomings, but my transgressions. Never does a transgression fall into the category of, I meant well. No, you didn't. Or, I didn't really mean to do that. Yes, you did. Or, my heart was in the right place. No, it wasn't. Or, it wasn't really my fault. Yes, it was. Or, it was a misunderstanding. No, it wasn't. It was a transgression. When you confess your sin, beloved, and when I confess my sin, we must use that word, I transgressed. I saw the red light of God's law, and I deliberately kept driving. I knew what God's commandments said, and I chose to break it. I deliberately disobeyed God's commandments. And so, a true confession of sin sounds like this I was disobedient to God when I lied. I transgressed God's commandments when I spoke cruel words to my spouse or to my children. I was rebellious against God when I disrespected my parents in the home. It was a transgression. I did it deliberately. I make no excuses. I was wrong, and I am sorry. The next word that David uses is iniquity. Verse 2 speaks of mine... Iniquity. And iniquity, like transgression, is deliberate and willful. The word iniquity means something twisted. Something twisted. We have in English the word wrong, which begins with a W. W W-R-O-N-G. The word wrong comes from another English word, W R I N G, to ring. If you ring something, you twist it. Something that is wrong is now wrong. And that's the idea here of the word iniquity. Iniquity is something that is twisted out of shape. So that it is the opposite of what it ought to be. It is the opposite then of righteousness. Righteousness means to be in conformity with God's standard straight, upright righteousness. Iniquity is to be twisted so that we are out of harmony with God's standard. And so David here characterizes his behavior, and again, he has specific behavior in mind. He characterizes his behavior as iniquity, mine iniquity. The standard was... Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife. David's behavior in lusting after Bathsheba was twistedness, iniquity. The standard was, thou shalt not commit adultery. David's behavior in taking Bathsheba and lying with him was twistedness. It was iniquity. Iniquity. The standard was, thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor. And David's behavior in deceiving Uriah and covering up his sin and not confessing his sin was twistedness. It was iniquity. The standard was, thou shalt not kill. And David's behavior in orchestrating the death of Uriah, his faithful servant, And putting him in the front of the battle to be killed and then delighting in his death was twistedness, was iniquity. And again, beloved, when we confess our wrongdoing, we ought to use that word or a word similar to it. We ought to say, I knew the right way. I had the standard of God's law before my eyes. I knew that the right way is to love God and my neighbor, and I am guilty of twistedness and of perversity. I willfully committed iniquity when I spoke lies instead of telling the truth. And I willfully committed iniquity when I disobeyed my parents instead of doing what they asked me to do. And I willfully committed iniquity when I looked at those vile images on the computer when I knew I ought not to do that. I'm guilty of iniquity. I have no excuses. I'm sorry. That's a confession, a true confession. Transgression, iniquity, and the third word he uses is sin. Again, verse 2 my sin. I dare say we're all familiar with what the Hebrew word for sin means. It means to miss the mark. We've all heard that before. The Hebrew language has this wonderful picturesque character character to it. Think of an archer who has a target. He must shoot at that target. If he hits the bullseye, he is a good archer. If he misses the bullseye, he sins. That's the word. He sins sins. But then take the picture one step further and think of an archer who knows what the target ought to be, but then deliberately shoots in the other direction, and thus he deliberately misses the target, thus he sins. That's the idea here. Sin is blameworthiness. God said, Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife. And David, he lusted after Bathsheba. He missed the mark. He shot in the opposite direction. He sinned. And God said, Thou shalt not commit adultery. David took the wife of Uriah. He missed the mark. He shot in the opposite direction. He sinned. And God said, thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor. And he deceived Uriah. He covered up his sin. He missed the mark. He shot in the opposite direction. He sinned. And God said, thou shalt not kill. And David plotted and executed the murder of Uriah. He missed the mark. He shot in the opposite direction. He sinned. And we sin too. God says to us, be kind to your wife. Be kind to your husband, be kind to your parents, be kind to your children, be kind to your siblings. And we speak cruel words, words designed to hurt them. Or we fight with our siblings in the home. We won't share with our siblings in the home. We are selfish. We disrespect our parents. What is that? That's sin. We miss the mark. We shoot in the opposite direction, we commit sin. And thus, our calling is to confess our sin and to turn from that sin. But David did not do that for quite a while. Remember, he takes Bathsheba. She becomes pregnant. He tries to cover it up. She bears him a son. And then Nathan comes. That's at least nine months, perhaps longer, perhaps a year, in which David refused to confess his sin. He lived in his sin. He made excuses for his sin. That's what we tend to do. We transgress, we commit iniquity, we sin, and our tendency is to cover our tracks in the hope that others will not know. And when we are found out by our parents or by someone else, our tendency is not immediately to confess and to be sorry, but our tendency is to deny it, to make excuses, or to shift the blame. It's not my fault, we say, he provoked me. She provoked me. I could not help it. There was nothing else that I could have done in the circumstances, we say. Rarely do we say, My transgressions, my iniquity, my sin. And David remembers what he was like before he wrote this Psalm 51. He thinks, as he writes Psalm 32, When I kept silence for nine months to a year, when I kept silence, My bones waxed old through my roaring all the day long, for day and night thy hand was heavy upon me. My moisture is turned into the drought of summer. Canons 5.5 explain this. Canons 5.5, you could put David's name in there. David very highly offended God. He incurred a deadly guilt. He grieved the Holy Spirit. He interrupted the exercise of faith. He very grievously wounded his conscience and lost the sense of God's favor for a time. For nine to 12 months, let's say, and David kept up appearances, you can imagine... He went to worship God in Jerusalem. Probably he went through the motions of religious activity. He went to the temple or to the tabernacle of his day and probably offered his sacrifices and praised God, went through those motions, but he was hiding his sin. He was covering his sin. He was minimizing and even denying his sin. He was not confessing his sin, and his conscience bothered him. His conscience accused him, and then God sent Nathan the prophet to confront him, and God worked graciously in David's heart to see his sin to recognize his sin and to confess his sin and truly to repent of his sin. And then, and only then, was he ready to write Psalm 51. Have mercy upon me, O God. He asks in this Psalm, and the opening verses of this psalm, he asks for three things with respect to his transgressions, his iniquity, and his sin. First, he asks that his transgressions might be blotted out. Blot out, he says in verse 1, blot out my transgressions. And here, he views his transgressions as blots or as marks on his record or as writings recorded against him or as stains on his clothing. Blot them out. He's imagining that God has a book. And if God were to open that book and look at David's name in that book, he would see transgressions and iniquities and sins listed against his name. He would see covetousness and adultery and murder and deceit and despising of God and doing evil in God's sight. And that really troubles him, alarms him. And he says to God, Blot out my transgressions. In Psalm 130, he writes this: If thy Lord shouldst mark iniquities, O Lord, who shall stand? Do not mark my iniquities, do not mark my transgressions against me, blot them out, he says. He might have said, in God's eternal decree of election, I am already forgiven. And therefore, he might have said, I do not need to concern myself about my sin. But he doesn't say that because. At this point in time and history, he knows himself to be, he feels himself to be guilty before God. He has incurred a deadly guilt, as the canons put it, and he cries out, blot out my transgressions. Wipe them away, the word means to wipe, to wipe away, to remove, to obliterate, or even to destroy God says in Genesis 6, verse 7, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth. The same Hebrew word is used. Destroy my transgressions. God says in Exodus seventeen fourteen, I will utterly put out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. Again, the same word is used. Put out my transgressions. Blot out my adultery. Wipe away my murder. Strike out my deceit. Remove my sins as if they had never been. Take them away from thy book. Blot them out. Wipe them away. That's our prayer, too. When we realize we have committed a transgression against God, our cry to God ought to be, blot out my transgressions. Second, in verse 2, wash me throughly from mine iniquity. Here, David views sin or iniquity as something that makes him dirty and filthy. And if you're dirty or filthy, you want, you need to be washed. If you fall in the mud and your clothes are covered in mud, you want those clothes to be washed. And you want to take a shower to remove the filth and grime and sweat of the day. And here David says, Wash me. Wash me. Don't wash my body or my clothes, but wash me personally from my iniquity in order to remove it. And David says, I want, I need a deep, thorough washing. Wash me thoroughly, or literally, multiply to wash me, multiply to wash me, wash me over and over and over again until every last stain of the filth of my iniquity is removed because I can feel it. I can feel it in my soul, in my heart, in my conscience. Wash me. He's asking here to speak theologically, although he doesn't distinguish these things theologically in his mind as he writes this. He's asking to be justified and to be sanctified. He's asking for the removal of the guilt of his iniquity, which is the forgiveness of sins, the pardon of sin. He asks, the implication is, he asks that righteousness be imputed to him, which is justification. He's asking, therefore, when he says, wash me, justify me, pronounce me innocent, impute not iniquity to my account, impute righteousness to my account instead. And he asks to be sanctified. He asks that he might be made holy, The Catechism, in connection with baptism, in question and answer 70, asks this. What is it to be washed with the blood and spirit of Christ? And that's really what David wants. Wash me with the blood and spirit of Christ. And the answer of the Catechism is this. It is to receive... Of God, the remission of sins freely for the sake of Christ's blood, which he shed for us by his sacrifice upon the cross. That's justification, you might say. And then it goes on. And also to be renewed by the Holy Ghost and sanctified to be members of Christ so that we may more and more die unto sin and lead holy and unblamable lives. And when we're under this conviction of sin that David was under, we don't necessarily distinguish in our minds, as we might otherwise, justification and sanctification. We're asking for both. We're asking to be made clean. We're asking to be washed. We know ourselves to be guilty. Justify us. We know ourselves to be defiled. Sanctify us. Make us clean. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me. Thruly or multiply to wash me from my iniquities. And third, David asks in verse 2, cleanse me from my sin. We had blot out, we had wash, and now we have cleanse. And cleanse, the idea of cleansing, usually refers to ceremonial cleanness. The word appears often in the book of Leviticus. In Leviticus, you have all these rules about how to be clean after being unclean. It was easy, distressingly easy, to become unclean in the Old Testament. You eat the wrong kind of food. You touch a dead body. You become unclean. You have an issue of blood. You become unclean. You become a leper. You become unclean. You must be cleansed then. Cleansed. And so David here is using the terminology of ceremonial uncleanness and clean, cleanness to describe his sinfulness. He's saying, as it were, I am As a sinner, unfit to be in the presence of a holy God. I'm not fit to have fellowship with the God of heaven. I'm like a leper, I'm like a filthy corpse. I'm like a bodily discharge in the sight of a holy God. I am so filthy that I should be banished from God's presence and favor and fellowship forever. And the only hope then for him and for any sinner like him is not that he should cleanse himself, that would be impossible, that he should cleanse himself, but that God should cleanse him. Cleanse me from my sin. And Here you see again the difference between a person who is penitent and a person who is not penitent a person who is not penitent will say it was not my fault a person who is penitent will say blot out my transgressions wash me thoroughly of my iniquity cleanse me from my sin a person who is not Penitent will say, He made me do it, or she made me do it, and one who is penitent will say, Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, cleanse me from my sin. One who is not penitent will say, You cannot blame me. But one who is penitent will say, Blot out my transgressions. Wash me from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. One minimizes his sin. One denies his sin. The other confesses his sin and seeks to be cleansed and washed from his sin. And the difference, of course, is the grace of God and the operation of the Holy Spirit in the heart of the child of God. David is penitent now after many months of impenitence, Because God has come by his grace and Holy Spirit and worked in David's heart and brought him to confess his transgressions, his iniquities, and his sins. This, though, you might say to yourself, this is a risky thing to do. to confess transgression, to admit iniquity, to own up to sin. Let's say, a very hypothetical situation, of course, but let's say that you are guilty of criminal homicide. You have murdered someone. And you've kept that hidden for many years and your conscience bothers you so that after many years you say to yourself I'm going to go to the police I'm going to confess my crime of murder I'm going to show the police where the body is buried what do you expect the police are going to do forgive you No. They're going to arrest you, they're going to charge you with murder, and the judge will sentence you to a long time in prison for the crime of murder, which would be what you would deserve. Well, David here is coming to God and confessing all kinds of sins. Adultery, murder, transgression... Iniquity, sin. And he asks, as he does that, that God would exempt him from punishment. That God would blot out his crimes. That God would restore him to favor. And yes, there will be consequences. He will be chastised as a child of God, but yet God will not destroy him and cast him into hell, which is what he deserves. How can he expect to receive such a blessing from God? It's quite audacious, if you think about it, for a sinner to come to God and say, Here are my sins. I confess my sins. Now, please forgive me of all of my sins. But David knows God. He knows God, and therefore he appeals to nothing in himself for a reason for forgiveness or cleansing. He does not say, according to my merits and my works. And my doings and my performances blot out my transgressions. Rather, he appeals to the very being and character of God. He appeals to God's mercy. The first words in the verse are have mercy. And those words could be rendered be gracious. Gracious. God's grace is his beautiful attitude of favor expressed for and bestowed upon undeserving sinners. And then he speaks of God's loving kindness, and God's loving kindness here has the idea of mercy or compassion combined with the idea of faithfulness and steadfast love, and a good rendering of this word would be covenant mercy. Covenant mercy. And then he speaks of God's tender mercy. And literally, he speaks of bowels. God's bowels. Because In the Hebrew language, the bowels were the seat of someone's emotions, one's tender feelings of compassion. And so David knows God as gracious, as merciful, as full of compassion toward his miserable people. David used three different words to describe his own wrongdoing, transgression, iniquity, and sin, and now he uses three words to describe God's goodness to him grace, mercy, loving kindness. And David asks then that God would apply his grace, his steadfast covenant love, his mercy, his compassion, he would apply all of these attributes of goodness to his particular case and situation. I have transgressed, he says, be gracious to me. I have committed iniquity, he says, be gracious to me. I have sinned, be gracious to me. Blot out my transgressions and do so because god you are gracious because you are compassionate because you are full of tender mercies the multitude he says the multitude of thy tender mercies only one who knows god would dare to make such a request. One who has dared to break all of these commandments deliberately before God's face and has been twisted in his behavior, has missed the mark deliberately, and then comes before God and asks for forgiveness, he must know something about the character of God, the grace, the mercy, the compassion of God. And yet, of course, there's also God's justice. God's justice requires that David be punished for his transgressions, that David be blotted out. God's mercy spares him. God's justice requires that David be destroyed for his iniquities, but mercy washes him. And justice requires that David be cast away from God because of his sin, and mercy cleanses him. And David, as a child of God in the Old Testament, is looking forward, of course, to the coming Messiah, to the Lord Jesus, where justice and mercy will meet in Jesus Christ at the cross, where justice punished Jesus instead of us out of God's mercy for us. And so God does not ignore the sin of David, and God does not ignore our sin either. But God blots out our sin, and he washes us thoroughly from our iniquity, and he cleanses us from our sin. Because Jesus died on the cross in our place. And because we know that, we can come to God with all of our sin, all the sin that burdens our soul. We can pour it all out before him and confess it to him in this confidence But he will forgive us, not because we're worthy, but because he is merciful. Amen. Our Father in heaven, thou art the fountain, the ever-flowing fountain of all good, merciful and gracious and full of compassion toward us who are miserable sinners. Give us the grace to confess our sin, not to hide it, not to cover it up, or to to seek to deceive one another with respect to it, but to be open and forthright concerning what we have done, knowing that thou art merciful to those who come in true repentance before thee. For Christ's sake, amen.